You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. I have a question for you. What will your legacy be? Will you be remembered for your commitment to liberty? Or will you waver at the sight of adversity? Will you hold the line and stand for truth no matter how popular it may be? Or will you bend to peer pressure? Will you let your faults and failures define your story? Or will you overcome your challenges and push forward in pursuit of something greater? Will you stand firm and be a champion of freedom? Or will you let it be said that you did nothing? Throughout our history, ordinary people have risen to the occasion to do extraordinary things in the name of liberty. These people were not perfect, far from it. Yet in spite of their faults and failures, they never looked back. No matter how many times they fell, they continued to get back up. This is their legacy. Because of their commitment, our world is more free. Each and every one of us has the power to follow in their footsteps. It's up to us to pick up that torch. Benjamin Rush may have only been the second most famous Benjamin to sign the Declaration of Independence from Pennsylvania, but his impact was not insignificant to America's founding. Many today, if they have heard of Dr. Rush at all, still know very little about him. Although he signed the Declaration of Independence, he was not yet elected to Congress for the vote on July 2nd. Still, putting his name on that document meant certain death if Americans lost the war. He signed it because he was committed to individual liberty. The idea that people can and should be free of oppression. But it went far beyond the cause of independence. He was a humanitarian as much as he was a patriot. He truly believed that all men were created equal. But he took it further than that. He thought that all people should be treated equal no matter race, sex, or class. Although certain medical practices that he had championed are now understood to be harmful rather than helpful, that was more of a reflection of his time than it was of him. However, he also revolutionized the medical industry in other ways, mostly social. He championed reforms to both the treatment of patients and prisoners. To him, these reform efforts were not only just, but also humane. Perhaps due to the blending of his interests in medicine and liberty, he is now often referred to as the father of American psychiatry. Still, perhaps his most significant contribution was his ability to heal old wounds. Not physical wounds, mind you, but emotional ones, personal ones. Because of steps taken toward the end of his life, he was able to heal a founding friendship, and in doing so, demonstrate to all of us how we can heal a nation.
Benjamin Rush was born just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on January 6, 1746. When Rush was only six years old, his father passed away, and he was left in the care of his mother and uncle. His uncle, Samuel Finley, was a reverend, and being placed in his care at such a young age deeply impacted his faith as he grew older. It also impacted his education. As Finley had him attend an academy that he ran until Rush was accepted to the College of New Jersey, which would eventually become Princeton University. His intrigue for the medical field truly blossomed here. By the end of his five years there, he decided he would pursue medicine as a career and took his next steps to become a doctor. He was trained through an apprenticeship with Dr. John Redman, a Philadelphia physician, in the early 1760s. Redman saw the potential in Rush and encouraged him to travel to Scotland and attend the University of Edinburgh, where he could claim his M.D. His upbringing and education in his early life demonstrated the great potential that he possessed to become a brilliant physician. But that says nothing of his ability to be a revolutionary patriot and an enlightened thinker. Furthermore, his education and upbringing is hardly what makes Rush special. Surely, there were plenty of people who, while not following Rush's exact path, had experienced the same level of education or greater. And usually, they were much wealthier than Rush could ever hope to be. By 1769, he had demonstrated that he could be successful, but going into the early 1770s, he was about to demonstrate that he was destined for greatness. During his time in Europe, he would make one of his first founding friendships with a fellow Pennsylvanian, Dr. Benjamin Franklin. Returning to America in 1769 after becoming a doctor, Rush opened up a practice and started teaching chemistry in the medical department of the College of Philadelphia. As Dr. Rush established his name and practice in America, his worldview began to deepen. It is clear that his view of the practical and political world informed his medical views and vice versa. He treated everyone, man or woman, black or white, rich or poor. His understanding of natural rights and equality before the law started to solidify due to this. Some may have been shy to touch on the divisive issue of slavery, but not Benjamin Rush. He became a fierce advocate for the abolition of slavery and helped to organize the Pennsylvania Society for promoting the abolition of slavery and the relief of free Negroes unlawfully held in bondage. Admittedly, that is not the catchiest name. Nonetheless, it was the first anti-slavery society in America, and certainly impacted the debate around slavery for years to come. As his political activities grew, his interests and passions seemed boundless. In addition to his opposition to slavery, he was a vocal advocate for independence. As the 1760s turned into the 1770s, he joined the famous, or rather infamous, patriot group, the Sons of Liberty, who frequently organized protests opposing the crown and British rule. More prominently, Rush had a way with his pen. He promoted his strong opinions in the local newspapers through articles and columns, much like his fellow Philadelphian, Benjamin Franklin. 
Not too long after his Patriot activities picked up, Rush became friends with another prominent writer for his time, Thomas Paine. The two hit it off immediately, and soon agreed to start working on a pamphlet together. Rush wrote down some general thoughts about what the American cause is, and gave them to Paine to put down in a pamphlet. Once Benjamin Rush helped Payne complete his draft, he helped him find a publisher who had enough courage to run potentially treasonous material. He found a Philadelphia printer named Robert Bell to publish the first thousand copies. Thomas Payne had an idea to call the pamphlet Plain Truth at first, but Rush allegedly suggested its final name. Common Sense. As the colonies neared revolution, Benjamin Rush became more engaged in the Patriot cause beyond the pen. After the Boston Tea Party, the colonies were sent into a frenzy, with anti-British sentiment running a new all-time high. In 1774, the first Continental Congress met in Philadelphia, where they discussed primarily their relationship with Great Britain. Several now-famous Founding Fathers attended this Congress, including John Adams, Samuel Adams, Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, and George Washington. Having so many influential figures in his town during such a revolutionary time had a profound effect on Rush. During this time, the Congress's greatest act, arguably, involved the passage of Thomas Jefferson's Summary View of the Rights of British Americans. In it, he condemned the oppressive nature of Great Britain, defended the Boston Tea Party, and asserted the right of the colonies to govern themselves. He stopped short of calling for independence, but it was a clear precursor of things to come in 1776. After a few edits, Congress agreed to adopt Jefferson's writings and sent it to King George. One thing that was removed from it was a strong condemnation of slavery. Of course, this was a non-starter for many in the Southern delegation. However, his view would be known once some of his allies leaked his original draft. Jefferson's strong position against slavery as a Virginian must have been surprising to someone like Dr. Rush, a Pennsylvanian who never benefited personally from the heinous institution. He would soon discover that after he met Thomas Jefferson, there would be much, in fact, that they agreed upon, and it would blossom into a lifelong friendship. Philadelphia continued to be a hotbed for Patriot activity. As America inched closer to independence, Dr. Rush continued to find new ways to engage in the cause. Once the revolution was well underway, he was elected to the Pennsylvania Provincial Conference, whose duty was to select delegates to send to the Second Continental Congress. Unfortunately, Pennsylvania's delegation was a major roadblock to the cause of independence. The vote had to be unanimous, but the colony's own John Dickinson was the leading voice who favored making amends over separation. In the months leading up to the final vote, he sparred repeatedly with John Adams and others who strongly favored the latter. Benjamin Rush, despite firmly believing in the American cause, did not get a say in this debate. He wasn't elected to the Congress at this point. If he had been, our story of independence might have turned out much differently. But instead, Dickinson drew out the process until the final hour. In July of 1776, he understood that he was not going to win the argument, but he could not put his name to the Declaration of Independence. He removed himself from the vote, not conceding, but also not obstructing. 
with the loudest voice for reconciliation now pacified, independence had been secured. Shortly afterward, Dickinson left to join the militia, and Pennsylvania decided to send a new delegation to Congress to represent them. This time, it was one with a more revolutionary view of the issues that they faced. Included in their new delegation was Dr. Benjamin Rush, ready as ever to alleviate the British disease plaguing America. He arrived in Congress on July 22, 1776, and signed the Declaration on August 2nd. Upon his arrival, he sparked up several friendships with many of his colleagues that would last for years to come. Perhaps his two closest friends in Congress were John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson would only remain in Philadelphia for another month after Rush arrived in order to serve in Virginia's House of Delegates. John Adams, however, would remain in Congress until 1777. Similarly, Dr. Rush also left Congress in 1777 in order to serve as the Surgeon General for the Middle Department, or the Middle States, of the Continental Army. Unfortunately, this appointment would lead to his most controversial and personally frustrating chapter in his life. Dr. Rush was likable and personal, and deeply cared about those in need. However, he had a few fatal flaws. Most prominently, he was a bit too loose-lipped about his fellow founders, and most notably, General George Washington. As Surgeon General, Benjamin Rush was responsible for the medical care and well-being of thousands of troops in the Middle States. He was appalled at the state of the medical services for Continental troops. He placed the blame of the mismanagement on the head of the Director General, Dr. Shippen and wrote to Washington an effort to correct this situation. Quote, I need not inform your excellency that we have now upwards of 5,000 sick in our hospital, Dr. Rush wrote. This number would cease to be alarming if our hospitals could afford such accommodations to the poor fellows as would ensure them a speedy recovery. He continued to write that Washington could, quote, stop in some measure the ravages our hospitals are making upon the army by ordering the surgeons immediately to billet such of the sick as are able to help themselves in farmhouses. Washington was all too familiar with the lack of medical supply and what the spread of disease was doing to his army, but there wasn't much that he could do on the matter without congressional approval. General Washington passed the letter along to Congress, hoping that they would take some action, but they didn't fix anything. In fact, they did not find any of the deficiencies in Dr. Shippen, that Rush saw, and they maintained his position. Outraged, Rush resigned out of protest. This wasn't a great time for the war. Washington wasn't winning too many battles, and the ones that he did win barely convinced the troops to remain in the fight. Many would simply not re-enlist after their contracts, and a few would even desert. This fact, coupled with the handling of the health issue, led to Dr. Rush questioning Washington's leadership capabilities. Perhaps he was the common denominator in these setbacks. Maybe if the army had a new commander-in-chief, they'd have better luck on the war front, and the troops would have more medical supplies. Dr. Rush's assessment greatly simplified the issues the American cause was facing at the time. Indeed, Washington did struggle, but anyone in his place would have, and likely to a greater degree. 
His support in Congress was minimal at best. He was walking a very fine line between taking charge of the war effort and acquiring too much power for himself. Nothing about the war in 1776 and 1777 was easy. And even when they did eventually start to win some victories, it would often be undermined by dramatic defeats later on. Still, to Rush, it all seemed like common sense. Rush wasn't the only one dissatisfied with Washington's performance by late 1777. Several high-ranking officers were becoming disillusioned with the general's capabilities and started to hint to Congress that they should replace Washington with General Gates, who was having a much more successful campaign in the North. Some in Congress were sympathetic to this idea. Even if they didn't question Washington's capabilities, some began to fear the military idolatry forming around him. Should that continue, it could be dangerous to the Republican government they were trying to form. In early 1778, an anonymous letter was written to Virginia Governor Patrick Henry, who was a strong supporter and ally of Washington. The letter suggested that Washington be replaced as commander-in-chief with the likes of General Gates or General Conway. Thomas Conway was an Irishman serving in the Continental Army as a brigadier general after Washington's support. Over time, he became increasingly cocky and arrogant and openly criticized Washington's abilities in a letter to Congress asking for a promotion. Washington had heard of rumors of a plot to undermine his leadership and replace him as commander-in-chief. Allies of Washington found the letters from the likes of Conway and others, which supported the theory, and forwarded it to him. While not exactly a full-blown conspiracy, there was an effort, if even passive, to remove Washington from his post. When Patrick Henry received this letter, it was only further evidence that there were those who sought to replace him. It read, quote, The Northern Army has shown us what Americans are capable of doing with a general at their head. The spirit of the Southern Army is in no ways inferior to the spirit of the Northern. A Gates, a Lee, or a Conway would in a few weeks render them an irresistible body of men. As a tireless supporter of Washington, Henry forwarded the anonymous letter to him. After he received it, he immediately recognized the handwriting. It was Benjamin Rush who wrote the letter. As more information came to light, the so-called Conway Cabal fell apart. General Conway resigned from his position. General Gates remained, but was disgraced for his involvement and begged Washington for forgiveness. Benjamin Rush, who was still an army physician, although no longer Surgeon General, also resigned in the spring of 1778. In the years after the Revolution, Rush would acquire a great sense of remorse and regret over his involvement in the cabal. He realized that he should have trusted Washington more than he did, and would go on to offer him continual praise throughout his life. He would later remark that Washington had, quote, so much martial dignity in his deportment that you would distinguish him to be a general or a soldier among 10,000 people. Following this unfortunate episode, Benjamin Rush returned to his medical practice and teaching starting in 1778. While he wouldn't provide much more direct contribution to the American cause in the final years of the Revolution, 
he continued to make social and philosophical contributions to American society. He began to give lectures at the University of the State of Pennsylvania in 1780. Three years later, he joined the staff of the Pennsylvania Hospital and would practice medicine there for the rest of his life. Not all of his medical practices, however, were well-renowned. He championed the fading practice of bloodletting, for instance, the idea that if you became sick, you have bad blood and must be bled in order to recover. Even some of his closest friends, like Thomas Jefferson, believed his commitment to the controversial practice did great harm. Still, with the state of science and medicine in the late 1700s, it isn't terribly surprising that even brilliant men could continue a practice we now know to be preposterous. However, many ideas and practices started by Rush were visionary and still continue to this day. Perhaps his greatest contribution to the modern medical industry was his understanding of psychiatrics. Mental health was an area that many people, even the most educated physicians, didn't fully understand. The idea of addiction in many ways was still a foreign concept. If you have a drinking problem, it was thought, simply stop drinking. Rush viewed alcoholism as a disease that couldn't fully be controlled by the alcoholic. He advocated for more therapeutic approaches to fighting addiction, like weighing someone off of an abused substance rather than expecting them to simply stop. Likewise, he advocated for reforms in how to treat mental patients. In those days, mental illnesses were viewed in very simplistic terms. You were either crazy or you were not. Rush, however, saw layers to mental illness. Someone could be born completely normal, but then have their mental state severely altered by a traumatic event. Because of this understanding of mental illness and a deeper belief in moral treatment, he abhorred the way patients were treated in mental institutions. These were not some rabid animals needed to be put down, but human beings with illnesses in need of treatment. Many of the ideas surrounding mental illness that Rush championed in the 1780s and 90s are now common practice. In addition to his medical contributions following his time in the Continental Army, the social reforms he advocated for included much of what we now take for granted today. Rush was active and helped form multiple societies in Philadelphia. In addition to the anti-slavery society that Rush helped found, he was part of the American Philosophical Society, the Bible Society of Philadelphia, and he joined the Pennsylvania Abolition Society in 1787. His involvement in all of these groups demonstrated his commitment to social or societal change, either directly or indirectly. What many may find surprising is that he was also against capital punishment. The death penalty today is one issue that continues to be debated in states across the country. Now, many are taking steps to abolish it outright. This is actually a policy many founders would have supported. And much of the current debate around the issue started with them. Benjamin Rush thought the death penalty to be inhumane and cruel. His ideas of justice was one where the criminal was not just punished, but reformed. He once wrote on the subject that, quote, "...the punishment of murder by death is contrary to reason and to the order and happiness of society." 
Furthermore, he continued to write that, quote, the punishment of murder by death has been proved to be contrary to the order and happiness of society by the experiments of some of the wisest legislators in Europe. The Empress of Russia, the King of Sweden, and the Duke of Tuscany have nearly extirpated murder from their dominions by converting its punishment into the means of benefiting society and reforming the criminals who perpetrate it. These reforms to the criminal justice system are only today just picking up momentum. But Rush was a trailblazer on the issue. He even suggested that the death penalty itself could be contributing to more violence, not less. An early advocate of what was known as the brutalization effect, Rush reasoned that a society which inflicts a punishment as cruel as death on criminals will lessen the people's respect for life. His advocacy led directly to the state of Pennsylvania distinguishing degrees of murder in 1790 and outright banning the death penalty for all crimes other than first-degree murder four years later. Another area where he was surprisingly forward-thinking on was in regards to a woman's role in society. Whereas it may have been common at the time to expect women to be the caretaker of the home and to let the men have careers and get an education, Dr. Rush viewed things differently. If women were indeed going to care for their household and their children, he reasoned, they could not properly do so without a robust understanding of moral philosophy, English, history, and more. He helped found and advocated for the Young Ladies Academy of Philadelphia. Its purpose was to educate more women in the importance of Republican motherhood. This was the idea that mothers were instrumental in teaching children the values of a free society and Republican governance. While this was a far stretch from the liberty that women experience today with education, it was a watershed moment for the future of women in society. Before, men were expected to engage in society, and women were expected to tend to homely matters. With this new vision of Republican motherhood, that line was blurred, and women became more active in society as a result. It also opened the floodgates of education accessibility to women that would only continue to expand as time went on. Dr. Rush finally returned to the realm of politics in the late 1780s. He was instrumental in crafting the Pennsylvania State Constitution and contributed to the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention for the U.S. Constitution. In the years that followed, he was appointed to treasurer of the U.S. Mint by his good friend John Adams, who was president at the time. He assumed this position in 1797 and kept it throughout the rest of his life. However, complications would begin to arise during the Adams administration. As tensions with the French rose, the Federalist Congress passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, which President Adams signed in 1798. This unpopular action sparked a deep division in the country that had yet been seen before. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, Rush's two closest friends who just so happened to be the president and vice president, were now bitter rivals. Jefferson led the Republicans and challenged Adams for his seat in the election of 1800. The two men who had more to do with leading America to independence than any other were now driving the country towards separation from itself. 
After a bitter fight for control of the government, Thomas Jefferson emerged victorious, and for the first time, the country peacefully transferred power between two opposing parties. But it came at a cost. Jefferson and Adams, once the closest of friends, now could hardly stand each other. John Adams didn't even attend Jefferson's inauguration. However, one common link remained that helped to heal the bitter wounds that they both suffered during the election. Dr. Benjamin Rush. Before the bitter election of 1800, Benjamin Rush and Thomas Jefferson were bonding a friendship stronger than it had ever been prior. Rush maintained a strong relationship with Adams since 1776. His relationship with Jefferson, however, only truly took off after Thomas Jefferson became Secretary of State. In Philadelphia, the temporary capital of the nation, Jefferson joined the American Philosophical Society of which Rush was already a member of. Throughout the 1790s, Jefferson and Rush would grow to know each other and bond over their many common interests. Not only politics and philosophy, but science, medicine, culture, literature, and religion, among others. Interestingly, Jefferson probably gave Rush one of the most specific views into his personal faith. Jefferson's religion is a topic of discussion that is continually discussed and debated to this day. Rush, like many other people, had heard a variety of conflicting reports about Jefferson's faith, most of which were political slander. As a devout Christian, it certainly piqued his interest, so at one point he just outright asked him. In his autobiography, Rush recollects a conversation he had with Jefferson in Philadelphia while he was vice president. When Rush asked him if he had lacked any faith or possessed a dislike of Christianity, quote, he denied the charge and said he believed in the divine mission of the Savior of the world. But he did not believe that he was the Son of God in the way that many Christians believed it. He said he believed further in the divine institution of the Sabbath, which he conceived to be a great blessing to the world, more especially to poor people and slaves. He believed likewise in the resurrection and a future state of rewards and punishments. While not the most mainstream view of Christianity, Rush's account of Jefferson's faith at the time hints toward a belief of Unitarianism. Their long-lasting friendship would carry into Jefferson's presidency, where Rush would be asked to help prepare Meriwether Lewis for his famed Lewis and Clark expedition. Once Jefferson retired from public life in 1808, he used it as an opportunity to strengthen his correspondence with his fellow children of the Revolution. Many of his fellow patriots who were there with him in 1776 were beginning to die off, and at an increasing rate. 
Yet one man who Jefferson had not reached out to was John Adams. The two still harbored a bitter resentment toward each other after the 1800 election. Their division was more than just a deterioration of friendship. In many ways, it represented a nation continuing to divide and fall apart. Dr. Rush was deeply troubled by their inability to reconcile. One night, Benjamin Rush had a dream which deeply moved him. On October 17, 1809, Rush wrote to John Adams to detail what had transpired. Quote, what book is that in your hands, said I to my son Richard a few nights ago in a dream. In his dream, his son had a history of the United States, seemingly telling of events that had yet to happen. He took the book from his son, and it read, Among the most extraordinary events of this year was the renewal of the friendship between Mr. John Adams and Mr. Jefferson, the two ex-presidents of the United States. He proceeded to detail to Adams that in his dream, the two of them would once again write to each other and rekindle their dormant friendship, which would last to the end of their lives. Finally, Rush wrote, these gentlemen sunk into the grave nearly at the same time, full of years and rich in the gratitude and praises of their country, for they outlived the heterogeneous parties that were opposed to them, and to their numerous merits and honors, posterity had added that they were rival friends. This dream was so vivid and detailed to Rush that it almost felt to him as if it were a vision from the Almighty, a prophecy even. During this time, the two revolutionary men were nowhere near a place to make amends. Adams wrote back, stating, quote, I wish you would dream all day and all night, for one of your dreams puts me in spirits for a month. I have no other objection to your dream, but that it is not history. It may be prophecy. There has never been the smallest interruption of personal friendship between me and Mr. Jefferson that I know of. Despite his personal doubts of their friendship returning, Rush's letters managed to get Adams to admit how much he still admired his old friend. But unfortunately, both Adams and Jefferson had too large of egos and personalities to be the first to break the silence. Still, Rush was convinced that the two men were destined to stomp out their old differences and rejoin in unity of friendship once more. By 1811, Benjamin Rush's sole mission was to ensure that that vision came true. He spent time with both men trying to convince them to let their guard down and pick up their pen. It wasn't easy, but he soon started to see a breakthrough. He wrote to Thomas Jefferson in January 1811, mentioning that, quote, Your and my old friend Mr. Adams now and then drops me a line from his seat at Quincy. His letters glow with the just opinions he held and defended in the patriotic years of 1774, 1775, and 1776. As he continued to fondly reflect on their old camaraderie, he expressed his desire for the two men to make amends. In fact, he argues that such an act would benefit the cause of republicanism and liberty itself. Posterity will revere the friendship of two ex-presidents that were once opposed to each other. Human nature will be a gainer by it. I am sure an advance on your side will be a cordial to the heart of Mr. Adams, wrote Benjamin Rush. Jefferson wasn't biting. 
As he wrote back, he stated, quote, I receive, with sensibility of your observations, of the discontinuance of friendly correspondence between Mr. Adams and myself, and the concern you take in its restoration. This discontinuance has not proceeded from me, nor the want of sincere desire, and of effort on my part to renew our intercourse. Neither men wanted to be the first to break their silence. Despite being convinced that it was not likely that their old bonds would be renewed, Russia's letter sparked countless memories of the precious time the two men spent fighting for liberty from Jefferson. He continued to observe, similar to Adams before him, that, quote, I have the same good opinion of Mr. Adams which I ever had. I know him to be an honest man, an able one with his pen, and he was a powerful advocate on the floor of Congress. However, in his opinion, Jefferson finds Adams to be quick to, quote, suspect foul play in those whom he is jealous, and not easily relinquish his suspicions. Certainly, Rush realized that their hesitancy and personal egos would not easily be overcome. However, if he could continue to get the two men to remember how they cared for each other at one point, he just might be able to make a reunion happen. For the rest of 1811 and into 1812, he continued to plant the seeds in the minds of both men that reconciliation was, in fact, possible. Each time he did, it was much of the same. Good memories would emerge, and both men would admit how much they respected each other still, but neither wanted to budge. If their silence was going to break, it would be because the other one broke it. However, when a neighbor of Jefferson's visited Adams earlier in 1811, he informed Jefferson that Adams admitted to having, quote, always loved Jefferson and still loves him. This convinced Jefferson to want to rekindle the correspondence at a minimum, but he had Rush make Adams send the first letter. He did so on January 1st, 1812. He sent a somewhat formal letter wishing Jefferson a happy new year, and providing some light updates. Their correspondence would continue throughout 1812, but still infrequent. They were willing to be cordial, but friendship would take time to rebuild. This continued into the spring of 1813, when suddenly, tragedy struck. Benjamin Rush was struck with typhus fever in Philadelphia in April, and was unable to recover. The 68-year-old founding father passed away on April 19, 1813. Since Philadelphia was much closer to Monticello than it was to Quincy, Massachusetts, Thomas Jefferson was the first to hear of Dr. Rush's passing, and it devastated him. As time was marching on, more and more of the founding generation was dying at an increasing rate. Furthermore, Benjamin Rush was probably the closest friend from that group of men that Jefferson had left. Now, he was almost entirely alone, and a sense of isolation and remorse had set in. He started to remember just how much time and energy he spent the past two years to help him and Adams heal old wounds. And what stood in the way? Their own personal pride. This caused him a great deal of pain, shame, and sorrow. With Rush now gone, Adams deserved to know about the passing of their mutual friend. Furthermore, Adams might be the only man left from 1776 that Thomas Jefferson had. 
Finally, on May 27, 1813, Thomas Jefferson informed John Adams about the passing of their dear friend, Benjamin Rush. As he picked up his pen, he wasted no time beating around the bush. He wrote to John that, quote, Another of our friends of 76 is gone, my dear sir. Another of the co-signers of the independence of our country. And a better man than Rush could not have left us. More benevolent, more learned, of finer genius, or more honest. As he continued, he reflected to John, and his sincerity and melancholy was shining through. We too must go, and that ere long. I believe we are under a half-dozen at present. I mean the signers of the Declaration. Yourself, Jerry, Carol, and myself are all that I know to be living. I am the only one south of the Potomac. John Adams wrote back that, quote, I lament with you the loss of Dr. Rush. I know of no character, living or dead, who has done more real good in America. Following this, the two men engaged in what seemed like a ceaseless stream of letters, each one eager to respond to the last. Although he did not see his dream fully realized, Dr. Rush had indeed successfully healed the friendship of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Over the next decade and a half, Adams and Jefferson would never stop their correspondence. In fact, it would often be the case that one would send a new letter to the other before allowing enough time to respond to the original. They didn't avoid discussing politics, but they refused to let it damage their friendship as it had before. No matter how much they disagreed, they remained cordial and eager to speak with one another. Yet, as it approached the 50th anniversary of independence in 1826, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were both deteriorating in age and health. Thomas was 83, and John was 90. In July, both men became ill and bedridden. As the days marched closer to the 4th, neither men intended to miss the 50th anniversary. But time was working against them. As their health worsened, both men knew what was coming but ensured they would hold on as long as they could. As Jefferson's state worsened, he slipped in and out of consciousness. Each time he woke, he looked around and asked his friends and family if it was the fourth yet. It will be soon, they responded. Very early in the morning, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, Jefferson's grandson, recalls that he realized he made it to the 4th of July and then finally slipped back out of consciousness. In Quincy, Massachusetts, John Adams was in a very similar state. Early that morning, Adams, seemingly also realizing he made it to the 4th of July, is said to have stated, It is a great day. It is a good day. As his condition worsened throughout the day, evening approached, and he knew it was time. Before passing away, John Adams declared, Thomas Jefferson survives. He was, in fact, mistaken. Thomas Jefferson died about five hours earlier, both reaching the fourth with their friendship and peace. Benjamin Rush's dream stated that the two men would rekindle their friendship and would die near the same time. It would appear that this turned out to be true, 
Dr. Rush showcased the importance of mutual respect between two political rivals. Not only did it save the friendship of Adams and Jefferson, it showed America a pathway forward. As he noted to Jefferson in 1813, such an intercourse will be honorable to talents and patriotism and highly useful to the cause of republicanism, not only in the United States, but all over the world. In the years following their deaths, America would face great trials of division and crisis. Indeed, today even, this divide plagues our country. Dr. Benjamin Rush demonstrates to us all that uniformity is not required in order to strengthen the bonds between two people at odds. Friendship and mutual respect, not political conformity, is what is required to build a more tolerant nation and world. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to this week's edition of Profiles in Liberty. I hope that you enjoyed the story, and I hope that you learned a good amount about Dr. Benjamin Rush. I must say that the story of the mending of the friendship between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams is one of my favorite stories in American history and one that we can all take a lesson from. Next week, we are going to be going over Samuel Huntington, who you may or may not know as the actual first president of the United States. Be sure to tune in next week for that, and also be sure to follow me on Twitter, at Caleb Franz. Be sure to follow uh, We Are Libertarians on Twitter, at We, the letter R, Libertarians. Also, if you don't mind, please subscribe to the Substack newsletter that we uh, release every two weeks. We have a bi-weekly newsletter uh, that covers many stories that might not quite fit for this show, but are good stories to tell and good stories to let you know about regardless, as well as updates about the show, personal updates, book recommendations, and so much more. So please be sure to subscribe to that, and please be sure to share this episode and share this show with as many people as you can. Get the story of liberty out there and help us spread this powerful message. Give us a rating, a five-star rating, and a review to let us know how much you love the show. And then, until next time, this has been Caleb Franz with Profiles in Liberty.